The topic of tonight's talk is no surprise as we continue in this uh, beautiful teaching of liberative dependent arising. I'll be talking tonight about dispassion. I've never taught for an hour on dispassion. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually kind of, kind of uh, well, I just really appreciate that we're covering these topics like disenchantment and dispassion because they're rarely community talks. Most people don't want to come on a Monday night to hear about disenchantment and dispassion. They want to hear about metta and how to feel better. And um, it's, it's great to uh, be able to share um, these explorations with, with you because you're in the space of practice where they're appropriate to really be teaching, teaching about. And I'd like you to just notice what happens in your experience when you hear the word dispassion. Notice what happens in your, in your body and in your mind and in your guts when you hear the word dispassion. So I, uh, I know my relationship to dispassion has changed a lot uh, over my course of my years of Buddhist practice. And tonight I'd like to invite you to get even more of a sense of um, for that which is dispassionate, to touch this territory of, of uh, not so much dispassion as a concept, but this process of being dispassioned. It's really like we are dispassioned. Dispassion happens. And uh, just to get a sense of kind of the feeling and the space of, of dispassion. I was in my room right before walking down here and I was just looking at the hills. I mean, it's such a perfect, beautiful day in many ways. And like Nikki said last night, there's a way that when we teach in these, these topics, we kind of brew in them for a while. So I was just you know, aware of the kind of attitude, quality in my mind as my eyes were seeing the green and just how it was to be seeing the shape and the color of the hills from this place of some measure of dispassion. There's a way that, uh, you know, a mind of craving and clinging sees the hills. Oh, great, I want to go run up those. I wonder what's going on up there. You know, what are the creatures up there? Just nothing is wrong with that kind of mental, you know, proliferation. Nothing's wrong. But what I noticed was this just directness of experience when, when the mind was abiding in this place of, of dispassion. There was a, um, an immediacy to what was being known. You know, when, when we see something like that and we go into what it can do for us, there's a duality that gets set up. I'm over here, that's out there. How do I get it now? And so there's just a sense of, all oh, right, the coolness of dispassion is uh, satisfying in a certain way. It's very, just that. 
that was it. It was enough. So the word passion, you know, has this Latin root that means to suffer. We talk about compassion, being present in the face of suffering. And so if you consider passion meaning to suffer, you might be interested in dispassion. (laughs) It has something to do with why you're here. And I want to name that the way I'm speaking about dispassion tonight is really as, a, um, as, as something, as a quality, as an abiding that can hold passion. An abiding that can hold your fullness, your um, love of truth, that can hold the waves of what it means to be um, a human being with emotions. Um, dispassion is something that can hold in a, in a larger, more awake place the waves of our lives without getting stuck, without getting so wrapped up, um, but that is connected to a larger, a larger space and a larger refuge that holds us. So dispassion is a process of becoming less invested in the stories of craving, becoming less um, involved with the process of construction, ongoing construction of identity, of, of self, and dispassion and passion, the way I'll speak about it tonight, they kind of go together. Because dispassion allows uh, the fullness of, um, of your heart, really. So dispassion is, this being dispassioned is a fading away of, of habit patterns. And uh, you, know, you know how it is from your experience on this retreat. Um, when something that has arisen maybe doesn't capture you in the same way. You know, there might be, oh, some ice cream sounds good, but the mind doesn't jump out and go after it. You know, it arises and it's known. There might be, you know, the stories that we encounter about ourselves in the practice, this, these crevasses of self-doubt that, um, that arise, the, the, um, the beliefs of, I can't do this practice, or I'm doing it the wrong way, or everybody's got it but me, or I should be more concentrated. Um, you know, there's a way as the mind is being dispassioned where these, these um, may arise but not take root. They don't capture us. Um, so there can be a sense of watching these patterns come and go without so much identification. It's like, oh, I'm on to that. You know, I see you. I see you. You don't have to go away, but I see you. And there's a real measure of freedom to see the arising and not become it. So, uh, I guess I just am inviting you to consider dispassion as a friend of sorts, as this cooling as a, as a kind of friend. 
In Buddhism, we use the word passion as a synonym for lust and craving and greed. And so um, dispassion is a, is a letting go in this time, and it's a fading. It's a fading that happens over time. Um, a fading where as the insights deepen, and as Nikki talked about last night, as we uh, see through the spell of enchantment, um, what mattered might not matter so much anymore. You know, you might like sushi or like road biking or like having sex, but there may not be the compulsion behind it where, where, where that sense gratification somehow has to be satisfied. You know, there's a sense that the kind of, um, there's a falling away of that compulsive need for gratification. There's a way that the gratification, the identities are not mesmerizing anymore. They aren't so central in the experience. So being dispassioned points you in the direction of equanimity, this great calm abiding, um, and to a place just of more immediacy and restfulness. Deepama is somebody whose practice inspires me. You know, it's just real, really palpable her, her, um, the impact of her realization on so many who have helped to build this hall and supported us to be here today. Maybe some of you had the good fortune to be with Deepama, who's just you know had an incredible amount of loss in her life, not an easy life, and uh, was such a really profound, incredible understanding, quite a, quite a teacher and a practitioner. And she was asked um, by Jack Engler about some of the misunderstandings in Buddhist teachings. She was asked, if we get rid of greed and hate and ignorance, it sounds like life might be kind of gray and dull, like, you know, becoming this boring blob of a Buddhist. And um, so somebody was asking her, Where, where's the juice? And Deepa Ma cracked up and she said, Oh, you don't understand. She said, there's so much sameness in ordinary life. We're always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. Once greed, hatred, and delusion are gone, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before. Now every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. Those words from a deeply dispassionate mind. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. So um, I want to talk a little bit about this, just this, you know, the way I commonly use the word passion, except for in this particular context, is, is to relate a sense of enthusiasm and zeal and aliveness, um, which is really important along a path of waking up. And, and so dispassion Sometimes we have to say this a hundred times. Dispassion has nothing to do with tamping down those energies. Dispassion has nothing to do with becoming smaller in who you are in any way. Um, you know, passion and devotion can be such an important part of what allows the journey of awakening to continue and such an important, valuable part of embodying 
embodying, living your realization. And when, when passion gets kind of dried up, um, we have to really take a look because our enthusiasm is part of what, um, or ardor, you know, this word ardency that's used in the Satipatthana Sutta, it's that ardor is part of what propels the journey, that that's an energy that we need. And um, Eugene Cash languages, languages this beautifully. He says, when this ardency is released, it becomes the fuel of spiritual life setting the stage for the organic arising of compassion and dispassion. So passion, in, in terms of being chanda, zest, enthusiasm, is uh, crucial, crucial for our practice. And, you know, dispassion allows for the space, allows the space for compassion to be, to be what it is for the heart to really resonate because there's not so much identity and belief in the way. This passion is part of that. I sat a three-month retreat and uh, it was was quite some time ago now, but it was just... It was a beautiful and uh, quite a deep retreat for me. And I, I left the retreat and I was having, I was experiencing more happiness and contentment than I'd ever experienced in, in my whole life. And the, the felt sense of my experience was one of really a great deal of spaciousness. The mind felt clear and soft, but mostly there's this feeling of, of spaciousness. And I was happier in a certain way than I'd ever been. But there was a feeling like I, I had to get to know myself all over again when I got home and I started interacting with people. Because there was a way that the um, kind of confines of the identity that I had lived in prior to that retreat, it just wasn't available anymore. It wasn't there. So there's this sense of like, who am I? Because that old Aaron isn't, isn't around anymore. It's like she had faded, gone to a different place. I was talking about this with one of you, but I remember going into my house after that retreat and thinking, oh, these are nice clothes, you know, like as, as if somebody else had picked them out. I felt so different inside. This person has good taste in art and I'm <laughs> likable enough person. And, um, and there was a way that relating was really different for me because I wasn't, there wasn't the same, there weren't the same pieces to bump up against inside of me that there was prior to that retreat. And on one level, I was very content. And on another level, it was unfamiliar. And it was uncomfortable in a certain way in its unfamiliarity. And I hadn't really read about transcendent dependent arising. I hadn't read much in the suttas at all, but I was writing. I was doing a lot of writing after this retreat, just processing what was happening for me. And I wrote that I felt like this bright tapestry that had been woven with all these colors and that the colors had all faded out, that the dye was gone in the tapestry. And I was trying to explain my experience to some um, loved ones. And um, it's like I, I, would, I would go out to eat and 
I liked going out to eat, but I didn't love going out to eat, and I'm a foodie. So there was a little bit of a, of a, of like a, an idea of a loss there. I uh, was happy to see my friends, but I wasn't thrilled to see my friends. I didn't mind road biking, but I didn't have to go on that ride. And, um, and I actually, later, <laughs> as I learned more about just studying Buddhism, I learned about viraga, <laughs> and that, that it's actually, the most direct translation is decoloring. And there's this image in the suttas of, a, of, like the, of, of a piece of fabric having the dye washed out. It's just so interesting how archetypal these images, because that was, that was the best way I knew how to describe what my experience was when that was happening. And, uh, and as, we, you know, as we become disenchanted, we also become re-enchanted. We can see the world with new wonder, with, a, with new eyes, when we're not in the spell, you know, reality is actually preferable to the spell. And when we become dispassioned, we become repassioned. You know, the, there's a way that the experience of being a person can be um, born from a different place, born from a different space, and the fullness of who you are can shine forth. And so for me, it was this process really, really over years of embodying and discovering and understanding kind of the personal expression that was alive for me, that the kind of the experience of being the person I call Aaron when those identities weren't running the show in the same way. And uh, there was a shift in my interactions. There was a shift in, what, in my clarity about what really mattered to me. And... Uh, Nikki spoke some about this last night. This, this happens, you know. We, we, out, we outgrow stuff. Stuff fades away. And there's a way it can, be, it can be disorienting in a certain sense. Like, what is this? Do I want this? How is this here? Who am I here? And uh, thoughts you know, are often a natural process in, in trying to make sense of the disorientation. We can all think about it, think about it, think about it. They don't really help that much. They mostly <laughs> defend us against, um, against what's been unfamiliar. And it's so important to have a, a guide that you really trust on this journey. It's really important to um, have a teacher or teachers who, who you feel like have traveled the territory and who you can um, trust to guide through in certain places. We, we need that. So some of being dispassioned is being willing to get to know a space of neutrality, being willing to hang out in the stillness, being willing to kind of trade in some of the big thrills and huge devastations for um, spaciousness and clarity and immediacy. So, in this process, the 
the kind of tight shells, you know, that feeling of having a shell around your heart a little bit or living in a shell a bit, it begins to soften, begins to fade away. And the ways that you have been invested in the construction of the story of yourself, invested in your 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 identity. We all have identity. I mean, I think the Buddha had a healthy sense of identity. Actually, he did. He spoke about himself in the first person. But the, um, the <laughs> he, he, you know, it, the Buddha had quite a healthy sense of psychological self. Actually, it's you know, we we need that. There there is a sense of self, but. Um, the ways that we are invested in the construction of ourselves, that we keep going, we keep going, whether it's being right or being deficient in some way or um, being needy in some way. This, this fading is a process of not believing that that's who you are in the deepest sense. The sankara may still go through, but um, they don't make such a such a difference because those kinds of identities are not ennobling at all. <laughs> those are not the stories of O Nobly Born. And uh, one teacher I like talks about this as, as uh, knowing where you can lay yourself down. Knowing where you can really lay yourself down and rest. And, and she talks about um, not building your altar in the direction of an identity that is small and limited. But really, it's more of a process of offering yourself to a larger world, offering yourself to the mystery. That's why, you know, faith is early on in this journey of liberative dependent arising, this this trust to offer yourself to something larger. And then the mind can uh, not go out so much. The mind can rest in itself. And there's a recognition of the, of the space and the awareness and the presence and the stillness and the attention that's here, even within the movement of the mind. And you know, mindfulness mindfulness encourages it all. That's that's how um, that's how it all happens. And there's the fire sermon. The Buddha was talking to a, a thousand monks, and you know, talking about everything. Monks is burning. He could be talking to us. You know, everything, practitioners, is burning. You know, and how is everything burning? You probably have heard this. The eye is burning. Visible things are burning. The contact of the eye with visible things is burning. The sensation produced by the contact of the eye with visible things is burning. And he goes on and on. The ears burning. The sounds are burning. Odors are burning. The tongue is burning. The body's burning, the mind is burning, burning <laughs> with the fires of great hatred and delusion. And that's some powerful language. Everything is burning. 
And he goes on to explain that a practitioner walking the noble path becomes weary of the eye, becomes weary of visible with visible, weary of visible things, weary of mental impressions based on the eye, weary of contact with the eye with visible things. You know, goes through the ear and the tongue and the all the way to thoughts. And so this fire that is being spoken about in the fire sermon is this fire of becoming, this fire of of greed, hatred, and delusion. And sometimes when the mind is quiet, you might have a sense of feeling into that. It's not like thinking about it, but just feeling into that. Kind of the, the sense of, um, I experience it as just kind of a sense of oppression, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, everything's burning. And the Buddha goes on to say, in becoming weary of everything burning, one divests oneself of grasping and by absence of grasping is made free. So this is, this is being dispassioned to divest oneself of grasping. And by absence of grasping is, is made free. And you, know, you, you can play with this in your, in your time here, you know. It's not that you can't go have the cup of tea, it's fine to have the cup of tea. But it's really what's happening in the mind, you know. Are you invested in it? You know, just, just you can you can drop in periodically, not as a big project, but just check like what am I invested in in this moment? Because it's very different to go have the cup of tea without a, being a big grasping. Or if grasping's at work, you might just just um, let it drop. You might take a step back. Take a step back. And so when the Buddha gave this sermon to a thousand monks, supposedly they all got enlightened by letting go of the need, you know, hearing the Buddha's incredible transmission, and um, it's from letting go of this, this need to construct, seeing through, seeing the fabricated nature of it all. So nice to hear all the creatures outside. This is by Rumi. I sat long enough in fire. Now I'm up to my neck in the water of union. You say, up to your neck is not enough. Make your head your foot and descend into love. There is no up-to-the-neck union. I say, but for the sake of your garden, I sat up to my neck in blood. You say, yes, you escaped the alluring world, but not yourself. You are the magician caught in his own trickery. Cut the breath of self and be silent. Language cannot come from your throat as you let go and go under. You are the magician caught in his own trickery, cut the breath of self and be silent. I did change one word in that poem. If you check it out on Dharma Seed, you'll notice that I changed one word.
So when uh, these, these spaces of uh, stillness or of, of uh, a more, diff- sometimes it's like a more diffuse way of perceiving can feel a little like that, or spaces of neutrality are happening for you, this is part of dispassion being your friend, it's important not to go looking for trouble. It's important not to go looking for the next thing to sink your teeth into. You know that feeling of like things are starting to settle and oh my gosh, I've got to do some inner child work now. Let me get after it. You know, inner child work's great. But just that there can be a sense that, you know, we're only doing the practice well when we're really working on some big emotional content. And sometimes that is that is a beautiful practice, but not necessarily always. You know, so you can just check in those moments, is there, you know, what is the mind invested in? Is the mind invested? This is like a divesting, divesting, investing in nibbana instead. And uh, I have to say, so I went online, like we do a lot, in giving these Dharma talks, and I looked up uh, viraga, and you know what came up? It's another word that starts with V. Viagra. And um, that was all that came up. And then, um, and I actually had to write it a few times so I didn't start talking about the disenchantment of Viagra or the dispassion of Viagra. But so I, I entered in um, Viraga Buddhist, and um, there were all these stories of Buddhist people using Viagra. <laughs> it went on and on. I just went to access to insight instead of Google. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so how how does it all happen? You know, we've been drawing this map for you and using the language of let, letting go. Let go, letting go. And I just want to say a little bit about that because there's times when the words let go, as was instructed here beautifully, can be exactly what is needed. It can be so skillful. It's like, all right, letting go invites uh, a sense of release, a sense of um, spaciousness, a sense of not being so hooked. Sometimes that happens. Um, But at the same time, we each know how it is to be sitting in the hall. I want to let go. Please, why can't I let go? You know, that feeling of if I could only let go. (laughs) Because the letting go cannot be willed. You don't let go. The mind lets go. The heart releases. It's really that through this long process of conscious awareness, moment to moment to moment, the, the dawning wisdom is what does the letting go. So we can create a whole self around the one who's letting go. And, and on, on one sense, that can be useful at certain times. But, um, but really, in letting go, we could also just as easily say, let be. Just really letting be, letting be. Letting, letting be. I, I know in my experience, like the hard stuff, the, like the big losses, the big grief, all of that, 
I don't let it go. It just lets go of me at a certain point. And so you might know that experience when something lets go of you. And it's like, a, oh, I can breathe a little, a little more now. You know. Um, and so, uh, this uh, letting go comes spontaneously, usually from the process of letting be. Because when we touch something in full contact, in full presence, you know, when we are willing to be very intimate with our experience in this way, the nature of it all, it, sh- it reveals itself to us. You know, and it's that, the, these um, insight into Anicca Anatta Dukkha, that, that really is the ground um, for this deeper kind of letting go. And it takes a foundation to allow something to arise or not arise. So we're, we're doing, we're really creating this foundation. That's the cultivation So sometimes I'm suspicious of letting go, but not always. Um, and the process, you know, the process, it's, it's not this perfect line of increasing letting go. And, you know, it's not like that. We come in thinking, you know, why is today harder than yesterday? I thought I was getting somewhere. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, as the practice matures, it's, it's like, the mind will settle more deeply and open and, um, and be touched in certain ways. And, and then things will get, get like more breezy again and get um, busier for a while. And the mind settles again, maybe deeper. And then there's often more waves of stuff that's going on. And, and, and it's like, you know, like the, like, you know, the, the heartbeat. Um, there's expansion and contraction, and it's, it's just no, no mistake. You can trust how it happens. I want to share with you a few words by Bhikkhu Bodhi that I really appreciate. Um, he's, he's an incredible scholar. And I really like what he has to say here. He says, Through the, Though the realization of the unconditioned requires a turning away from the conditioned, it must be emphasized that this realization is achieved precisely through the understanding of the conditioned. Nibbana cannot be reached by backing off from a direct confrontation with samsara to lose oneself in a blissful oblivion to the world. Nibbana can only be attained by turning one's gaze towards samsara and scrutinizing it in all its starkness. He goes on to say, I love this, he goes on to say, the understanding of the conditioned and the realization of the unconditioned are found to lock together in direct connection. The understanding of the conditioned and the realization of the unconditioned are found to lock together in direct connection. So what that says to me is that nothing is outside your practice. What that says to me is radically start where you are, wherever you are, right there is the entry point. Right there, right here 
is where you wake up, whether you're feeling really concentrated or a total basket case, right, right here, um, is where we wake up in this experience of um, really knowing, really holding, really connecting with, with experience. So I shared a little bit about um, my experience uh, being with my mother in her in her journey with terminal cancer in my first talk, and I'm going to share just a little a little bit more about this experience because it was a what was a kind of teaching, profound teaching and, and passage in my own life. But it was it was a journey of a lot of these steps actually of liberative dependent arising, particularly disenchantment and dispassion. And um, yeah, my mother, I was, I was with her in a close way in her, in her journey with terminal cancer. And she died on the younger side and I was with her directly, um, especially in the last month of her life when she got into this hospice bed in the old TV room <laughs> that she didn't get out of. And um, it's such a teaching, those of you who have had the good fortune to spend time um, with the dying, you know, terminal illness reverses the momentum of life from being born to this this real fading away. And uh, my mother spent a lot of time kind of taking the seat, not by her choice. You know, she was in pain and sick. She couldn't go do, do much of anything at all. So she just, you know, she, that was when she started getting interested, actually. I she, she said to me, maybe, I think I would like to do some meditation, Erin, maybe you could help me. It was just so, so funny and sweet, actually. But um, there's this process she, she that went through, she went through, you know, before the very end of this, this um, disenchantment. I would watch her try to uh, have what previously satisfied her satisfy her. She would ask me to bring over the neighbor's little poodle to put by her body because she loved this little poodle. And the little poodle, I'd bring over the little poodle. The little poodle made no difference. Part of this was the morphine at a certain point. <laughs> but um, or she, she would ask, can I have some champagne? Sure, mom, I'll get you some champagne. Like it was a special occasion. You know, Here's the champagne. No, no interest in the champagne. Just this idea that somehow champagne would be, you know, the spell of it. There's no, no interest. And, um, and so there's a way that this, that this process of terminal illness doesn't always go this way, but it can bring a person very much face-to-face -face with the fact that we're not in con control in terms of the mental ego. And um, when my mom's process moved to more of a kind of, of uh, viraga, of, of um, dispassion, what was fading originally was, was the fear and anxiety. What was fading were the waves of agitation, of fear and anxiety. And eventually what faded really between us in a certain sense were, were the, um, the identities of mother and daughter. Now, they were there in a relative sense, no question about it. But there was very much um, the separation of it faded away. 
the um, the bumping faded away, the identification faded away, and there was just this experience for weeks being with her, where there was really nothing in the way, there was there was no obstruction. The the passions, the fires, weren't so in the way for a time, and the experience of that relationally was one of um, just profound, each of you know this, you know, birth, death, all these different, um, not just birth and death, a lot of places of connection where there's a kind of um, intimacy, immediacy, just a very direct um, meeting that can happen when personality view isn't running the show. So for her, it was like this, longer journey this i mean this journey doesn't just happen once it's spiral happens all these different ways over time it's not just this you know this leads to this leads to this leads to this it's not that linear (laughs) at all so don't don't expect that it's more of a like kind of a mix of certain conditions but um there was a way that she went through this um journey that can often be much longer in a very concentrated time and and as this fading was happening and the elements were dissolving, there was such radiance remaining. Just such radiance. And this might be true in your mind too. You know, in those moments when you're not constructing, you know, what's left is often quite radiant actually. People would come in and they would look at her face and just remark on the radiance. And, uh, Teacher Jan Chosen Bays writes, if we're stepping into the unknown, if we practice stepping into the unknown moment by moment, hour by hour, year by year, millions of times, then death is just the next step into the unknown. It loses its terror. So we're practicing stepping into the unknown moment by moment. And um, we're practicing to live. And we may, many of you may also be practicing to die. You know, this practice is a, can offer great um, refuge when it comes to uh, the end of our lives. So, um, Rilke, this is from the um, eighth Do We Know Elegy by the German poet Rilke. Just a few, a few pieces of it. That pure space into which flowers endlessly open. That pure unseparated element which one breathes without desire and endlessly knows. A child may wander there for hours through the timeless stillness, make it lost in it and be shaken back or someone dies and is it. Forever turned toward objects, we see in them the mere reflection of the realm of freedom, which we have dimmed. So we're um, shining the light on the realm of freedom rather than dimming it. But really, you know, everything we're teaching up here, including this talk, just to name that, you know, it's not 
for any particular, I think Nikki talked about this last night too, there's a lot of overlap in these topics, but um, that, that we're not aiming for any particular experience. You know, it's like, it's not, oh, I have this experience of dispassion, bam, I've got it. That's actually a corruption of insight. You know, you can use this passion to create another, another big self, and then it's certainly not very free anymore. But you, you know, you can just notice moment to moment. You know, if, if if you feel the mind kind of reaching for, what am I invested in here? Is it possible to step back? How is it to allow these these moments of um, cooling? You know which might be experienced as neutral. How is it to be available for the Dharma, available to be touched by, by the great mystery? And um, we're really moving from any ideas about acquisition to radically, um, radically, this path is not about getting anything at all. You don't get anything. <laughs> Um, and really, this is where the, the this teaching of transcendent dependent origination um, turns in the direction of the unconditioned. This is the climate of the mind that um, that it, that turns to the unconditioned. And with this can come of just a very strong desire to be free, very strong. Uh, deep, deep wish for liberation. And so as we move in the direction of, of the deathless, it's like a place of um, not coming into being, not subject to decay, not being born, um, not a state of birth or movement. But there's this this, this cooling and uh, kind of uh, being here, awake, just here, awake, not needing anything, not, uh, not leaning forward, not leaning back, just here and awake, and the mind settles so there's not the kind of jumping or gripping. And the good news is that you don't do it. <laughs> You don't do it. And um, in terms of, of a passion, it's the place to put your passion is, you know, invest your passion in, in awakening. Invest your passion in all you ever have, which is this moment. Being, being right here, invest your passion in that rather than in some narrative, self-defeating narrative about your practice rather than being right or doing it perfectly or beating yourself up, just invest this, this passion in uh, being here, being available, being willing to, to not know. And it's just this process of surrendering into the larger, the larger refuge that holds us. I think that's all I have to say. So let's uh, let's.
Let's just sit for a couple moments. Thank you for your attention this evening. Thanks for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.